This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, the world's smartest network. Today, we're going to sit in on a conference that explored one of the most talked about and exciting topics in modern health and medicine, the use of what's called big data to do medical research. Appropriately, it's a big subject with big promises being made, big money at stake, and big opinions surrounding it from all sides. And it was the subject of a big two-day symposium here at the Academy this past October, co-presented with New York University School of Medicine and sponsored by Johnson & Johnson, called Healthcare in the Era of Big Data, Opportunities and Challenges. And what is big data exactly? Well, simply put, It's using modern computing power to work with huge streams of information, organizing and analyzing data sets that were far too massive to even gather just a few years ago. And it's a natural step to apply these new approaches to health and medicine because there are so many unsolved challenges there and also so much data that could be gathered. Almost every single one of us has an electronic medical record that's updated every time we see a doctor. So it tracks when we're sick and what medicines or other treatments we're taking, as well as a lifetime of information about things like our weight, blood pressure, lifestyle choices, and so forth. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are billions of pieces of genomic information that have been gathered by services like 23andMe that do genome analysis. All the millions of Fitbits and smartphones out there with fitness apps have gathered mountains of data about things like people's heart rates and when and how they exercise. Even search engines are a goldmine. For instance, you can accurately track flu outbreaks by looking for how many times people Google phrases like, what are the symptoms of the flu? And there are so many more examples. A digital ocean of potentially useful information about our health. And one of the reasons that so many in the medical research field are so excited about the potential for this kind of data mining is because of something we've discussed often on previous episodes of the podcast the limitations of currently long-standing systems for testing new treatments and medications. The way it's generally done now is based around randomized control trials, or RCTs, and those have definite strengths. They're very conservative and careful about weeding out biases and false positives and potential safety issues. But these kind of trials are deeply problematic, too. They are very slow and very expensive, often taking years and millions of dollars to conduct properly. And by design, they're extremely limited in scope. They seek to be as specific as possible by testing how a new treatment performs against a very specific metric in a very specific group of people. And this is in direct contrast to actual clinical practice in which no two patients are alike, and everything happens in a complex web of interacting systems. Here's Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, a cardiologist and healthcare researcher at Yale University and Yale New Haven Hospital. In order to force standardization of information and be able to uh, do our studies, we end up with work that doesn't reflect real world very much and doesn't reflect the breadth of real patients. A small percentage of all of us end up participating in highly structured, often expensive, long-standing studies that end up after an extended period of time getting published in the medical literature and then after an extended period of time end up getting translated into practice 
And then by the time that happens, it's, it's not even hardly relevant to the medicine of that day, let alone to you as an individual. They come in, in part, I think that's why practitioners look at the researchers and say, well, I, I don't really know if I can trust what you guys are doing because, you know, my world is, is much more complex than what you guys are portraying in, this, in these papers. This frustration is echoed by much of the patient community, who are often unable to participate in research even when they want to, and unable to see themselves in the research that is being done. Here's Dr. Jamie Holloway, a cancer researcher who, after her own battle with breast cancer, became a patient advocate. Um, most patients are still very eager, whether it's because of altruism or just wanting to make something better out of the bad experience that they've been through. They're very eager to um, have their data used in a way that's meaningful and, and productive. And so to say that, then it's pretty distressing to think about the fact that only 5% of patients, at least in the oncology space, where I spend most of my time, get to participate in clinical trials. And there's lots of barriers, you know, geographic, sociodemographic, and um, eligibility criteria barriers that prevent them from participating in trials. This is all exacerbated by the fact that RCTs almost always are conducted in person at major medical research centers. So they exclude people who live elsewhere or don't have the means to travel. Here's Dr. Deborah Kilpatrick, a bioengineer who is currently CEO of a health and measurement company called Evidation. Probably no one in the community where I grew up has ever been in a clinical trial because there's, there's a very, very small, almost basically an urgent care center-like hospital. Tertiary care is 40 miles away along a, a highway that's very itself is very rural. My point being, that's America. <laughs> that's where most people are. Here's Dr. Patrick Ryan, Senior Director of Epidemiology Research at Janssen Pharmaceuticals and an Assistant Professor at Columbia University Medical Center. The vast majority of questions that matter to clinicians and matter to patients, there are no good answers coming from clinical trials. And these unanswered questions often relate to the most basic and commonly used healthcare interventions. Take a condition like hypertension, which affects literally one-third of all adults in the United States and accounts for billions of dollars of sales in pharmaceuticals. There's a surprising amount of all of those treatments that are based on assumptions and not actual scientific data. Here's Dr. Ryan again. Um, so in the hypertension example, we don't really know whether drugs that are, belong to the same class actually have the same effects. We assume, based on biology, that they probably should, but that hasn't actually been proven. It'll be very unlikely that most pairwise comparisons of drugs in a class will ever be compared in a trial. But what if there was a better way? The proponents of big data see an opportunity to do better at every level both for individual patients and society as a whole, by aggregating different kinds of large data streams at different scales. With the example of hypertension, think of how your doctor would generally test to see how you're progressing. You'd get a single blood pressure test when you went to the doctor, and then another when you went again weeks or months later. That means that your doctor only knows about what's going on with your blood pressure at those two particular times, and only when you happen to be at the doctor's office, which might be very different from when you're in your normal everyday routine. Here's Dr. Robert Califf, a cardiologist and former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, who is now a professor at Duke University. The one that 
I'm seeing my doctor about tomorrow's blood pressure. You mm. know, like most Americans my age, I've got hypertension. Um, I'm going to carefully take all my pills and, you know, try to look as good as I can tomorrow when I show up for clinic like people do. But what if you had a ring that measured your blood pressure uh, mm. continuously and your doctor could just get a report that said, you know, 70% of the time your blood pressure is too high. Stroke is a silent killer, right? You don't know anything's wrong until you have the stroke. Uh, we can control your blood pressure and you don't have to even take out a cuff and blow it up anymore. Um, we can really treat it. I think that will also be uh, revolutionary. So these very simple common things that have just been hard to deal with because it required a lot of activity and focus to take care of it, I think we're going to be able to tackle. Now imagine taking that kind of continuous blood pressure information from thousands or even millions of hypertension patients all at once and then cross-referencing it with information about which drugs they're taking and how often. Then, instead of spending years on a controlled test to determine how often a particular drug produced a particular reaction in a particular cohort of a few hundred patients, you could be studying the different outcomes produced by hundreds of different treatments for the same condition in millions of patients all at once. You would have information then about the relative value and effectiveness of different treatments in a way that randomized control trials just cannot produce. This is the kind of breakthrough that these big data systems promise to offer. And the people who are excited about the potential for big data in healthcare are really excited about it. They see nothing less than a complete sea change in the way we do medicine. Here's Dr. Krumholtz again, followed by Dr. Joanne Waldstreicher, Chief Medical Officer at Johnson & Johnson. It's about the opportunity for us to think differently about how things work. And the idea will be not to turbocharge the decision of one single individual, but to think broadly about how all of us connected can build to a collective wisdom that advantages each of us but also produces benefits for the ecosystem, for everyone. Most of us can agree that big data can be referred to as the fourth industrial revolution. And in many ways, big data is already revolutionizing healthcare. But I think we have a feeling, I certainly have a feeling, that we are just at the beginning of that revolution. And it's important to realize that this isn't a theoretical possibility. This is something that's happening right now. Quite a few organizations and companies are aggregating third-party medical data as we speak and using it to do research. Here's Dr. Amy Abernethy, the Chief Scientific Officer and Chief Medical Officer of Flatiron Health, a company that builds and operates big data solutions for oncology research. We're therefore sourcing data from either the EHR or the quality, quality monitoring system from over 2.1 million patients across the US, representing about 2,500 oncologists and oncology care providers. This allows us then to bring all of those electronic health records into a, cent a central um, uh, clean environment that, that is where we do the data processing. It also allows us to be relatively, not perfectly, representative of the United States. And representativeness is really important as we think about how these data sets are going to lead to credible results for the future. There's a really difficult underlying question here, though. This is a mass of data points, huge streams of numbers or yes-no options. 
But at the core, each of those points is a piece of information about an individual person, potentially sensitive information about their bodies and health histories. And in a large percentage of cases, the people these points represent don't know, or at least don't fully understand, that this information is being sent off and used by someone other than their doctor. Here's Craig Lipset, head of clinical innovation and global product development at Pfizer. Life sciences companies purchase a great deal of aggregated de-identified data every day. I'm not revealing a, some secret. There are very large multi-billion dollar companies that do this for a living. Just this afternoon in Europe, Tim Cook used a phrase of the, um, the data industrial complex. Now, when, when, when this health data is in this economy, no patient or physician was aware that when the enter button was clicked in the EHR at the end of that patient encounter, that there was monetization happening on the back end. So do these researchers even have the right, ethically or legally, to use this information? Do the companies who are collecting it and selling it to researchers have the right to do so? Who does this data even belong to in the first place? The patient who it describes? The doctor who collects it? The insurance company who paid for that collection? To be honest, at the moment in this country, nobody really knows. Here are a couple of legal experts who are trying to make sense of all this. Craig Conniff, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Boulder, and Dr. Barbara Evans, Director of the Center on Biotechnology and Law at the University of Houston. Doctors say they own the data, but there's, it's, it's, um, and patients say they own the data. It's completely unclear as to who, who owns the data, um, and uh, it, it's completely context-dependent. Data that are held by healthcare entities are under the HIPAA framework, which is a federal medical privacy framework. Data that are equally health-relevant held by commercial entities may not be under that. So one of the challenges the United States faces is this very fragmented set of privacy laws. And those commercial entities she mentioned layer yet more legal confusion on top of all of this because they are trying very hard to protect what they see as their intellectual property. So they're busily applying patents, trademarks, copyright, and outright trade secrecy over this existing model of privacy and personal ownership. Here's another legal scholar, R.T. Rye, co-director of the Center for Innovation Policy at the Duke University School of Law, followed by Mr. Conniff again. This is the... I think the bread and butter of what a, a lot of these data collection firms are operating um, on, because that's how they're going to recoup their expenses if they're not publicly funded. And the question is, if trade secrecy is how you know these firms are going to operate, how do um, how does transparency fit into that? How do patient privacy rights fit into that? Um, I think these are, are really significant questions, and I think part of patients' anxiety or, or participants' anxiety about all this is that if you have trade secrecy, it's really unclear what's being done with your data. And that brings up another important wrinkle in these ownership questions. The fact that there's money being made from this data. Quite a lot of money. Here's Mr. Lipset again. It's one thing to talk about instances where people want to share data to benefit research, to benefit mankind, altruism, and that's great. And we all rely on that as researchers every day and we're grateful for it. 
On the other hand, there is a fair market value. There is a financial transaction that's often taking place. And that's taking place without necessarily the both the transparency or the participation of the individual if they wish. And here's Dr. Rainu Kaushal, Chair of Healthcare Policy and Research at Weill Cornell Medical College. And the recent example, which um, was mentioned earlier today as well, about Memorial Sloan Kettering, where the chair of pathology started uh, a company based on uh, pathologic specimens over the last 40 or 50 years. Some of the board members at Memorial Sloan Kettering bought into this. And um, there was a public outcry when it hit the front page of the New York Times. Uh, and I think it raised some really interesting questions about who owns data, um, which you started to touch on, if anybody. Who profits from data? Do you profit from data or do you profit from the services or the analytical tools that you layer upon data? Um, and what does this new world look like in healthcare? And what can we learn from other industries? Now, these ethical, legal, and emotional issues are complicated even more by the fact that almost no one thinks that the information gathered for big data health analyses will end with the kinds of information we immediately recognize as medical data. Particularly when analyzing huge, far-reaching public health issues like obesity or the effects of air or water quality, there's way too much useful data floating around there from other sources about what people spend, where they live, what they eat, and who they interact with. Here's Dr. Art Kaplan, chairman of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Medical Center, followed by Dr. Evans. We've seen a few beginning projects that are trying to correlate everything, meaning I have your electronic health record, I might have something that's feeding me information, from your Fitbit, but I also have your credit card, I have your cell phone locator, I know what restaurants you eat in, I can figure out pretty quickly how often you ride around in an Uber and where you go. And so I could really get a pretty useful profile relevant to your health about your habits. Because now all data are health data. My financial data will tell you a lot about my future health. We need to realize that health data is not a sequestered thing, but all of our data bear on our health, and we need a way to mobilize it for health-related and public health purposes. Not surprisingly, this is not a comfortable situation for a lot of people, to have their lives tracked and that information sold for profit, whether or not it's in the name of public health. So what does that data industrial complex have to say for itself? Well, on the issue of profit sharing, a standard response is that it's not feasible because we're talking about big data, meaning the aggregation of millions of pieces of information. And it's that bigness that give the data their value. By themselves, the data from any one individual have almost no commercial value. Here's Dr. Abernethy. When, when I first, uh, before, this was before I went to Flatiron, we were working at that time with Amgen trying to figure out how much any particular one medical record was worth if we were to pay the patient back. Um, and it was on the order of about 40 cents because the challenge is any one particular medical record at that individual medical record phase 
for doing large scale like research like this doesn't have much value until it becomes part of the overall system as well as all the curation steps that go from taking that medical record to, to having it be useful data. Generally speaking, that argument is holding for now. But many would say it's really only holding by a thread. And that as this issue becomes more and more widely known, it's not going to continue holding. Here's Dr. Kaplan. And a lot of people think, yes, that's the last word on stewardship, control, and ownership of big data sets. I'm here to say I doubt that a lot. I think somebody's going to gear up a little lawsuit and say, you're making money out of my tissue samples. I want a piece of the action. And just telling people no or you don't get anything, I don't think it's going to work. So how we deal with subjects, how we collect information, what we promise them back, I think is going to turn out to be a huge issue in the future in the big data space. As for privacy concerns, the answer most often given there generally relies on what's called de-identification. Before any of your medical data are added to one of those big data sets, the rules say that anything that could directly link that piece of information to you, your name, social security number, and so forth, are removed. Theoretically, that preserves your privacy. But many are now concerned that with this massive conglomeration of different streams of information, medical records with financial records and so forth, using those same computer algorithms to triangulate that information and suss out the identity of an individual would really not be that difficult. Should the police or your insurer or some third party decide they really do want to know if it's Art Kaplan in that billion data point set, I think they'll be able to find out if they want to. And the response to this concern about privacy protections falling apart that's presented by many big data advocates is often that we all just need to get over it, that people's fears are largely overblown, and that the benefits to society are too great to be worried about those fears. Here are Nadav Zafrir, co-founder and CEO of the data and cybersecurity firm Team8, and Mark Barnes, a partner at the law firm of Ropes and Gray. The other thing is that we're so self-centered. I mean. Uh, uh, really, I mean, uh, who cares? Uh, my my mother-in-law uh, doesn't use a smartphone because she's sure that the the government is after her, uh, uh, and that they really really know, want to know everything about her. And I tell her, Judy, you know, this I, I had to break it to you, but nobody cares. Uh, I, mean, I do. I would not vest, you know, kind of ownership like go no-go rights in individuals because I think that when we do that, we lose the power of data and the benefit of data, and that's. You know, so I'm often trotted out to say, you don't like your data or your biospecimen being used in a de-identified way, get over it, because you've, been, you've benefited from everybody else's being used. So I am, I am an enemy of consent in this, in this regard, <laughs> just to be clear. I, I truly believe that a rational, uh, pragmatic individual will always opt in to get the benefits that they can get from a connected world, uh, rather than opt out. To be fair, though, there are plenty of rational and pragmatic reasons why someone would be suspicious of this kind of information gathering. For one thing, we have a for-profit health insurance system in this country, and it doesn't seem much of a stretch to think that insurance companies will try to cut their losses by making coverage decisions based on information about your overall health. Here's Dr. Kaplan again. But sometimes we act as if big data will solve everything for us, not in a system like in the U.S., 
where the insurance side is broken and universal access doesn't occur. They go hand in hand. Trust to compile big data on me is going to have to assure me that I'm not going to get kicked off the healthcare rolls, or for that matter, life insurance or disability insurance or other privileges that might come with uh, having uh, coverage. So I think the two go hand in hand, and if you don't solve the one, you're not going to solve the other. And also, there are several minority groups in this country with deep cultural memories of having their medical data used against them by society at large. A prime example of this is the way gay men were treated during the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Here's Dr. Mitchell Lunn, an assistant professor at the medical school of the University of California, San Francisco. I like to think about communities or populations that have been stigmatized, that have been actively discriminated against by medicine with a capital M, by the government, by research in general. And that, you know, I'm from San Francisco. I was born in the 80s. I was not around when gay and bisexual men were kicked out of their house and dying on the sidewalks of San Francisco. But as a gay man, I know that's history. And I know that medicine and that the federal government neglected the LGBT population at that point. And that makes me, as a gay man researcher, reluctant to participate <laughs> in research unless I trust um, what is going to be done with my data. And even to the side of such egregious examples, to many, having information about you used in a study means that you're participating in that research. And people in a free society really ought to have the ability to decline something like that. Because there may be a genuine reason they don't support the research you're doing. Here's Mr. Barnes again, making an interesting counterpoint to his earlier full-throated support of using data about people, whether they opt in or not. One thing that I wanted to, I wanted to say about the, about the secondary uses of data is that, and this is sort of the, the most difficult, to me, this is the most difficult ethical problem in secondary uses of data, is using people's data to prove something that is actually completely antithetical to what they believe. And that can be, I mean, and that cuts always. It could be, as in the Havasupai case, using genetic data to show that, in fact, they were the, this little tribe of 500 people at the bottom of the Grand Canyon was descended from people who came over the Bering Strait, as opposed to growing their religious belief that they grew up in this canyon within the Grand Canyon. That's one possibility. Another possibility is like you know using using health data to um, to prove uh, to say things either for or against abortion, in terms of the risks and the benefits and the damages and the everything else. I mean, you can use people's. It cuts all different ways depending on what the religious beliefs or the other kinds of closely held personal beliefs are. And using people's data sort of against them in that way, you know, it's, it may be scientifically useful and it can be, but trying to adjudicate that, I think, I don't have an answer for it, but that's, I think, one of the hardest questions. Here's Sally Oaken, a registered nurse and vice president of policy and ethics at the organization Patients Like Me. The notion of trust sort of engenders this idea that uh, if you're a, a glass half full, full person, that people are going to be trustworthy. Um, but I think we have to have checkpoints along the way to be sure that that's not getting violated. Um, so I think where real world evidence could lead us is incredibly um, uh, opportunistic. Uh, but it can be opportunistic in both positive and negative ways. And the risk for negativity, if you, as, as you default on a negative outcome, uh, can ac actually have very dire implications on people's lives. 
There's a lot to unpack there, and a lot of unanswered questions. But even if we put all the ethical and legal concerns to the side for a moment, there are also tremendous logistical challenges to big data in medicine. And a lot of them come down to the core of what's being done. Using data that was not specifically collected for the purposes of a research study. Because when someone designs a traditional research study, one of the most important things they do is make sure they're collecting the same data from each subject in the same way, so it can all be compared easily. This real-world data we're talking about here was collected by all kinds of people for all kinds of different reasons, so it's sometimes really tricky to make it line up. Think, for instance, about medical records. The information in them was written there basically for two reasons. First, so your doctors can remind themselves of what they saw when they examined you. And also, so the insurance and billing paperwork can be filed correctly. Neither of those require anything like the same level of rigor as a formal research study. Here's Dr. Jacqueline Corgan Curry, Director of the Office of Medical Policy at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So let's say a patient goes into their physician and they have sort of hypertension and diabetes and maybe some depression, right? And they come in and they've got the EHR, so we've got their medications, we've got some things. Maybe they get their blood, they almost always get their blood pressure taken. It's in millimeters of mercury. So that's great, standard across the record, entered into one place. You know, they maybe they got to the lab, so we have an idea of what their diabetes is. Maybe not. Maybe they're just going to tell you what they think it is, and maybe the physician's going to record something like diabetes, overall good control, no extreme highs or extreme lows. That's what we have. And for their depression, you know, maybe we haven't had to do anything with their depression in a while. So the typical note, and I, you know, I think I've been guilty of this, is, you know, depression on X, X milligrams. Maybe I had the milligrams, maybe not, and stable, continue. And so that's the a real difference in the kind of granularity of the information we get. And even when these logistical challenges are met, there's an additional hurdle for people doing this kind of research to jump. Because these methods are new, and very different from the more traditional ways of doing clinical trials, there's extra work that needs to be done to demonstrate that the results they're deriving are accurate and reliable. Here's Dr. Ryan. In the clinical research context, where we are primarily focused on randomized clinical trials, we have a belief that if a trial is well designed, that it will be unbiased, it'll give us a proper causal inference, And the thing that we do in our clinical research paradigm is we actually focus on data quality by trying to ensure the provenance of every single data element. And we we regiment the the idea that since we have randomization, it's unbiased. Since we do data quality assessment, there's no measurement error. And therefore, we can trust the answer that comes from the trial. The challenge we have in observational data is that we don't have randomization. And uh, we should stop pretending that we're going to eventually get complete provenance of every data point because they were never captured for research purposes. We don't have an analogous uh, consensus approach that every time we do an observational study of causal inference or, or uh, clinical characterization that, we, that alongside the answer, do we provide that unit that says, here's how much I think you can trust this answer. But I think if we're going to get to the point where observational data has the same level of credibility as clinical research, we're going to have to create an obligation that that type of uh, methodologic evaluation and that measurement of performance becomes part of our standard story. So that when people look at a weather map, 
they trust the weather even though they don't they don't know that there's perform we don't know what the performance of that weather system is but they know that somebody has done it and they understand that there's some belief that we can trust it we need to reach that same level as it relates to answering healthcare questions but all of these challenges will almost certainly be surmounted because the truth is that for medicine to continue improving it needs more and better information than traditional research studies are capable of providing. And for many, if not most, of the research community, the information provided by big data analyses are just too valuable. They offer real, actionable information to doctors about how to better treat their patients. And that will save lives. Here's Dr. Ryan, followed by Dr. Califf. Clinicians do a remarkable job of doing the best thing that they think based on a limited amount of information. What big data can do is just add more information to, to just help decisions, and hopefully steer away from things that are clearly wrong, but potentially just, you know, when you are in the situation where you don't know about alternative choices, provide a little bit of perspective of, here's what the real world is saying about that object. You know, what I always said is I'd rather have a good doctor than none but I'd rather have a good doctor armed with good data <laughs> than just a good doctor, by a long shot. So maybe the real question is not whether we should be using big data, but rather, how are we going to adjust our thinking, modify the infrastructure for research and drug approvals, and properly safeguard people's privacy so that we can use big data in the most effective way? Here's Dr. Krumholtz. Uh, medicine's about to embark on an entirely new era, uh, but I think it's entirely unprepared for the ethical, legal, scientific, commercial, and humanistic challenges, as well as the opportunity. Uh, our world is moving quickly, and the old rules, old standards, old paradigms, old expectations, I believe may crumble quickly, and we could be better off, but we could also be worse off as a result. And the challenge ahead is to be wise about the coming changes and to work hard to ensure that they don't enrich the few, widen the chasm of inequality, and disadvantage society as a whole, but that instead they usher in a time of abundance in medicine and healthcare, of rapid breakthroughs, of information as a tool of empowerment, and of the best possible health as the ultimate outcome at a cost that society can sustain. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Austin Cologne and scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Kari Fisher and Dr. Melanie Brookman Borchard. All the quotes heard in today's episode were taken from speeches at the podium and interviews conducted at the event, Healthcare in the Era of Big Data, Opportunities and Challenges, presented by the New York Academy of Sciences and New York University School of Medicine and sponsored by Johnson & Johnson. It was held at the Academy on October 24th and 25th, 2018. Very special thanks to the many experts we heard from in this episode. 
They were, in order of appearance, Dr. Harlan Krumholtz of the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Jamie Holloway of Georgetown University, Dr. Deborah Kilpatrick of Evidation, Dr. Patrick Ryan of Janssen Pharmaceuticals and Columbia University, Dr. Robert Califf of Duke University, Dr. Joanne Waldstriker of Johnson & Johnson, Dr. Amy Abernethy of Flatiron Health, Craig Lipset of Pfizer, Craig Conniff of the University of Colorado Boulder, Dr. Barbara Evans of the University of Houston, RTK Rye of Duke University, Dr. Rainu Kaushal of Weill Cornell Medical School, Dr. Art Kaplan of New York University, Nadav Zafrir of Team 8, Mark Barnes of Ropes and Gray, Dr. Mitchell Lunn of the University of California, San Francisco, Sally Oaken of Patients Like Me, and Dr. Jacqueline Corrigan Curry of the United States Food and Drug Administration. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, the world's smartest network. 